to you as I do now. I'm not a pastor of an organization. I'm not a servant of the church in general. I feel like God used this book to help me to care for and feel committed to you personally. And how does this idea of me changing and us changing relate to the text? The point I want to draw from verses 21 and 22 is that God's words come to life through God's people. So let's read those verses. So that you may know how I am and what I am doing, Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. So Paul couldn't come to the Ephesians in person, so he sent this guy named Tychicus instead. And it doesn't sound like he just sent this guy at random. He picked someone in specific, and he had two purposes that he chose him for. Purpose one is to tell the Ephesians how Paul is doing, and purpose two is to encourage their hearts. Now, why would Tychicus need to encourage their hearts? Think about it. He shows up with the letter of Ephesians from God, one of the most majestic letters ever written. Wouldn't you think that that's enough to encourage their hearts? Why would they need this brother to also encourage their hearts on top of the letter of Ephesians? And the reason is that even though the words of the Scripture are encouraging and we have not got enough encouragement or all the encouragement out of them that we have ever gotten yet, they are meant to come to life in the flesh and blood relationships of God's people with each other. The church of Ephesus was meant to live the letter. We are meant to live the letter. When Tychicus showed up, he showed up as a beloved brother and faithful minister. When he was among them, he would live out the words from this letter as a representation of what the Ephesians were supposed to live like. Paul sent him as a flesh and blood example to show them what it's like when these words come alive. And so, the last eight months have been good. But they're only in so good as we've actually changed. If we've learned a lot of things and a lot of theology, but we haven't become new people, if we haven't put off the old and put on the new, and grown to love one another more, and care for unbelievers more, if the letter and the theology hasn't come to life, then the book hasn't had its effect. Every word that God speaks to us is supposed to change how we live, and we're supposed to live it out. We're supposed to put it on display. When we live out the words of Scripture, Jesus Christ becomes more real to us and to other people. He's not meant to be a theory. He's meant to be really experienced by us as we really do the things that he tells us to do. So I wonder, what ways has this letter changed our church in the last eight months? 
to answer this question. I'm going to break the whole book up into four sections. And then I'm going to ask how each of those sections relates to our life as a church. I mean, kind of a little state of the church address. So the first section of the book of Ephesians starts with chapter 1. And it emphasizes God's work of salvation with God as the starting point. So it starts out using the word grace. Paul uses the word grace seven times in the first chapter and a half. And he starts with the description of the Father, Son, and Spirit. In our sermon series, we had one sermon with the point that the Father delighted to predestine us for adoption. Another sermon, that only the blood of Jesus can really set us free. And another sermon, that the Spirit is the seal of God's promise, that we get God, and that he gets us. These um, realities inform our understanding of grace. To understand God's grace is to understand that he doesn't just forgive you and tolerate you, but that when you receive his grace, you actually become as precious and beautiful to him as Jesus. There isn't this sense when you understand grace that God is only letting me hang around him. Like maybe some friend who's much cooler than you and only tolerates you but doesn't really like you. That's not the situation we're in. The situation we're in is that because of Jesus, God is as crazy about us as he is about Jesus. And that makes a difference. So much so that Paul actually erupts in prayer at the end of chapter 1. And the whole content of his prayer is, God, help my children just to get it. Help them to get how much grace and love I have for them. They won't understand it. Unless they pray to me and my spirit shows that to them. So we had some sermons out in prayer with the points. Father, would the Holy Spirit open our eyes to know who you are and know all that we have in Christ? And Christian, do you know the power you have? How have I seen this attitude of grace unfold in our community? I have heard testimonies from some of you who are sitting here, that your sense of God's love and favor has grown dramatically. That you no longer feel as insecure as you used to feel. That your relationship with God is not like someone with a flower plucking the petals saying, he loves me, he loves me not. But there's a sense that my Father is for me all the time and I don't have to worry about it. Praise God that he's given some of us this sense of assurance this sense of blessing, this sense of belonging in our community. That isn't something that I did, and it's not something that you did. It's something that God did. I've also seen a growing culture of prayer and dependence on God. If we experience God as our adopting father, we will cry out to him and pray to him. It is healthy for little infants to cry out and pray to their God for help. You know, I heard a story once that there are orphanages that are eerie to step in because the babies are quiet and they don't cry. 
why don't they cry? Because they don't have parents they trust to take care of them. If we have a heavenly father we trust to take care of us, we will be a people who cries out to him again and again. We never stop being spiritual infants when we follow Jesus. And so we should never think that we're a burden to him or that he doesn't want to hear us. The measure of our spiritual health is how often we cry out to him. So praise God that we've been growing in that. I've celebrated to see the steady increase of people who have joined us in pre-service prayer. And I just want to make a, a plea right now. Could we make that a habit as a whole church? I know we're all so busy. I know that a lot of people couldn't even be here tonight because they're so busy. But if there's just one more 30-minute session you could squeeze out, this is the one I'm pleading for. Because I really believe that if we start to pray as a community, we're going to start seeing new things happen as a community, things beyond what we've seen already. So just my invitation to please come pray with me, come pray with other people before the church. I love it that we all have our prayer closets. I love it that we take prayer with God on our own as a priority. But we see something in the scripture that when God's people pray together, God pours out his spirit in special ways, and I want to call us to that. How can we improve in the area of knowing the grace of God? There are several who are in our community who are still going through seasons of doubting God and doubting themselves. They are not living freely as children of God who know they are loved and are secure in that love. When you're insecure and you lack assurance, that's debilitating to the Christian life. It turns your focus off of God and off of others and to yourself. Insecurity destroys the witness and flourishing of several people in our community who have gifts that we need them to use. And I'm not throwing stones at anyone in this situation. It's everyone's responsibility that everyone flourishes in our community. So I want to call us to looking for specifically the people who need to be reminded most of all that their Heavenly Father is 100% for them. And I want to call us to sharing that with one another more regularly and more often. That God is for you in Jesus is never a message that should grow old for anybody. And may the Holy Spirit give each of us discernment to know who needs to hear that message most. Let me share something with you. That message preached up here from the pulpit is going to be insufficient at overthrowing all the strongholds of unbelief in our community. It will not happen from up here. No matter how many sermons some people hear, they need to hear it from their brothers and sisters in one-on-one conversations. And so if we're going to be a whole community who grasps and appreciates and feels secure and free in the love of God, then all of us need to be preaching this to one another. All of us are shepherds of one another. Okay, let's move on to the next section of Ephesians. So the second section of the book is chapters 2 and 3. And its emphasis is God's work in salvation but it starts with us as a starting point rather than God. 
It's going to tell again how God has saved us. But it's going to start with us. And the fact is, is that none of us could have been further from God than we were before we met him. The book of Ephesians reminds us that we were dead in the sins and trespasses in which we once walked. We weren't dying. We were dead. That means spiritually, however nice we dress ourselves up on the outside, our hearts were all rebellion against God all the time. When he showed up in our lives, he didn't find anyone struggling in the water asking for a life preserver. He only found corpses on the bottom of the ocean. And then he raised them up. And he wants us to know how far he went to rescue us. So we can be glad that he did that. That's why he tells us how bad we, off we were without him. So we can celebrate the rescue that he's given us. Our sermons, but God, captured the idea that God was our only hope who could rescue us. And our sermon, Grace Alone Saves Us, but is never alone, shows how God saved us as we were, but never leaves us as we were. And Paul goes on to say that the effect of this astonishing grace is an astonishing community. So what do I mean by that? So, since the only qualification to enter into this community is the grace of God. That's it. There is no one who doesn't belong here. There is no one who sinned too much. There is no kind of person who isn't welcome. The ground is equal at the foot of the cross. That's why everyone is welcome in the church who trusts in Jesus. And that's why there's not another organization like the local church on earth. We preach this concept in the sermon. Jesus has broken every barrier to bring us peace with God and one another. And then we preach the sermon. The person God wants to use to build his new community is you. To emphasize that God personally wants to use you to build this amazing new community that he's created. There's no such thing as a professional in the church. There's only family members. And every one of you in Christ are one of those. And God has a plan to use you to build his community. And then we preach a sermon, God wants you to know the love of Christ more than you know, to marvel over what God has done. So what have I seen in our community to demonstrate this reality of radically accepting grace? We have embraced two different families of different cultural backgrounds than a lot of us who were in need of help and support, and we helped them very well. And they were also people who possessed wonderful gifts to share with our community. We have people from eight different cultural backgrounds who worship with us. We have gradually added members of different generations other than millennial to our congregation. And we have seen members engage and love our children like they are part of the family. And lastly and most importantly is that I sense a humility and desire to welcome anyone among us, no matter who they are, 
that there isn't any sense in which we expect people to clean up their lives before they come and join our family. We understand that the church is not a museum of saints. It's a hospital for sinners, isn't it? So may we have this, this radically accepting attitude for others, just like Jesus had for us. Now, where can we grow in this area? We would greatly benefit from people in their 40s upward who want to make disciples and multiply themselves. Would you please pray about who you know who might fit this description? And maybe you can invite them to come and be with us, come and hang out with us, and see if the Lord is calling them. And would you also pray and work to see that we make and baptize disciples of many different cultural and ethnic backgrounds? Would that be a prayer request of ours? Would that be a goal of ours? To become the body of Christ like we see pictured in the book of Revelation. Okay. Let's move on to the third section of the book of Ephesians, which spans chapter 4, verse 1, through chapter 5, verse 21. And its emphasis is God's extraordinary work of making a family that resembles himself. The first three chapters are about what God has done. Now we're in the part of the book that talks about what God is making us to be. So this is the part of the book that reflects on the supernatural unity that belongs to the family of God and to the diverse spiritual gifts he has given each of us to serve his body. So how we love how we serve, and how we change into Christ's likeness these should be miraculous things. They should be nothing short of staggering. Because God says that he's doing these things. There should be something about our community that feels supernatural, like you wouldn't be able to find it anywhere else. Our sermon, Sharing One God, makes us one people, showed us that we have to have this unity. Our sermon, Maturity Without Diversity is Impossible, showed that we must use our different spiritual gifts to build up this one body. Then we preach several sermons on Christ's likeness. Take Off the Old and Put on the New was about living out our new identity. Wake up and walk in the light was a plea for us to bring secret sin into the light and confess it. The secret to the spirit-filled life and also how do you avoid wasting your life like a fool? You spend your days under the influence of the spirit. We're both on how the Holy Spirit makes the decisive difference in our lives as we follow Jesus day to day. Now, how well have we done in growing in a Christ-like family? For so many of us, all people's church is really the spiritual community that we've been longing for. If anyone here has felt that, can you say amen? Most of our members see each other at least three times a week, and most of us more than that. And here are some stories I've heard that I want to share with you. Justin says APC feels like a family 
in the way we listen to each other and believe the best about each other. Charlotte says she has felt God's love in the care given to her through prayers, presence, and counsel. All this during a hard season she had last year. You guys will notice Theo and Amanda aren't here today. Theo shares that this weekend, when his daughter Abby got sick with the flu and took away his and his wife's sleep, his MC responded. Joel and Queen came over with food and also to watch Abby. Mark had a surprise meal delivery. And Charlotte was over at their house this morning providing a meal. And Caleb says that he and Abby came into APC feeling weak, but were immediately embraced as family. They were blessed beyond words when some people, some of whom they hadn't even met yet, joyfully brought them meals after the birth of their third child. So how could we see growth as a Christ-like family? What ways do I want to see us continue to advance. While some DNA groups are thriving, I feel like several of our DNA groups have not come together with one another on a day-to-day basis. And friends, I just want to encourage you. Let none of us live as if we don't need the ministry of the Holy Spirit through other people on a daily basis. To press into our DNA groups and other Christians is to express our deep dependence on God. I think we're, we're wrong when we think highly of the Holy Spirit's ministry directly to us, but then we shrug our shoulders at his ministry to us through other people. Let's not live like that. Let's live like a family who's committed to be with one another, to exhort one another daily, as long as it's called today so that none of us might be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. I feel like there are people here who you're waiting for chances to minister or waiting for chances to be ministered to, who will feel that when we start to live like that. And now I want to move on to the last section of Ephesians, spanning chapter 5, verse 22, through the end of the book. The emphasis of this section was the ordinary situations that God's extraordinary work unfolds through us. So the last section was the extraordinary work of God. And this section talks about how that extraordinary work happens in everyday situations of life. So, it includes marriage. That sermon's point was, a spirit-filled marriage is a gospel-announcing megaphone. It includes family. That sermon's point was, Your family exists for the glory of God. It includes work. Those sermons' points were Christ is your real boss, and you can do God's work with your work. It includes spiritual warfare. That sermon's point was if you will survive, you must fight. And it includes all the different situations we have to share the gospel with people. That sermon's point was pray for boldness to preach Christ. As we walk through these sermons of marriage, family, work, evangelism, I think it becomes clear 
that Paul's vision of discipleship is all of life. It isn't Sunday morning and Wednesday night. It's each morning when the alarm clock goes off to each night when you lay your head down to bed. How have we done well at living out all of life ministry? Since we started the book of Ephesians, we've started two brand new missional communities. And now three of our four missional communities are living on mission with unbelievers week in and week out, having contact with them, serving them and loving them to tell them about Jesus. There was one instance where someone at one of our house churches asked us to come clean up her home. And that weekend, 90% of the church was in her home. Cleaning, sweeping, washing dishes, praying, holding babies. Now that's what being the church is like. May we have more of those experiences. I've gotten together at Benjamin and Mary's home for a meal, along with Elise and Charlotte, to speak long into the night with friends who do not yet know Jesus about Jesus Christ and the hope that there is in him. And there are a handful of members who I'm aware of who get together regularly on top of everything we already ask you to do just to read the Bible and pray together. No other agenda than to be with Jesus. May our lives continue to converge with one another. May this not stop at this point. May we become more and more desperate to have one another in our lives more of the time. Mary mentioned that it's a sacrifice to live like that. That you always have to give something up in order to gain something else. And to gain one another as family like we want to, we'll have to leave certain things behind. So may God give us the grace to keep doing that. Where do we need to improve at living on life, living life on mission? So we are so thankful for every member of this church, every member of this family. I just want to point out, though, that 100% of our growth has come from other churches. And we haven't yet had a baptism. And I think we should be very thankful for the community we have here, for the love and the life we share with one another. But my point is, let's not get content with that. Isn't it so easy to grow content, to grow complacent? I want to ask us to have a renewed vigor a renewed desire that our neighbors would know Jesus, that the nations and our neighbors would know Jesus. I'm calling us to prayer. I'm calling us to introspection to a certain extent. And ask, what else can I do to share Jesus with people I haven't shared him with yet? I would love to see baptisms here. I would love to see some of you baptize people. And so it, may we pray that the Lord would use this special community that he's building here to draw not only believers who are hungry for more community, but unbelievers who need the community too to become part of our family through Jesus Christ. And I wonder now, do all these areas of improvement that I'm suggesting we move into, 
feel like a burden to you? Does it feel daunting or hard? I want to draw attention to the last two verses of, of our sermon here. Peace be to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. Now, if you notice, Paul actually ends the letter of Ephesians right where he started it. Chapter 1, verse 2 says, Grace to you and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So grace and peace at the beginning, grace and peace at the end, and if you read throughout the letter, grace and peace all throughout it. Peace is the quality at being at relational oneness and harmony with another. Take a look at chapter 2, verse 14. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. The book of Ephesians is calling us to this peace in our relationships with God, with one another, and to expand this peace to unbelievers who don't yet know Jesus. And this peace that this book is talking about is a lot like the peace in the Garden of Eden that Adam and Eve enjoyed with God, where everything was right and nothing was broken. Except this peace is a better peace that we get to have. Because it comes to us through the new creation and through the cross. We live in a broken world, and so it's tough to feel this peace. But the peace we have and the peace we offer to others is a better peace than even Adam and Eve had. So why is this not daunting or difficult to pursue? Because God, Paul speaks about what God has done again and again in his book to bring about grace and peace before he commands us to pursue it. He mentions the word grace ten different times at least in this letter. And then he mentions the word peace five times. And when he mentions peace, it isn't about us pursuing peace. It's about Jesus having already accomplished peace by dying on the cross. Here's the point I'm making. The cross always comes before obedience. God will place no burden on us he hasn't already carried on his, himself. Working to create this peace is not doing a new work yourself. It is taking a work God has already done in Jesus and making it real in our lives and other people's lives. Here's an example I'd like to give of that. Ephesians 4.32 says, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, Forgiving one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. Forgiveness is so hard. When others wrong you, it cuts so deep. You don't want to let go. But you have to. Because God has commanded you to. But he hasn't commanded you to do it without first giving you that peace and giving you a forgiveness. 
God forgives you of your sins that are a hundred times as bad as any sin anyone has committed against you before you forgive them. What God has done always comes before what he's called us to do. So don't feel the burden. Feel joy. Feel like he's called you to something he's going to meet you and help you to do. Let us be joyful laborers with a light burden and a light yoke. What would it look like if we grew in these areas we just reflected on? I think we would become an even more secure family who is more eager to bring unbelievers into a relationship with Jesus. I think our joy and sense of God's presence would reach new levels if we were discipling brand new baby believers in what it's like to follow Jesus. If your Christian life feels good right now, I think it will feel that much more exciting when you're walking through the most basic and important things with a new believer about who Jesus is. If your Christian life feels bland and boring right now, I feel like it would take a gigantic leap forward if God was using you as an instrument in the lives of new believers. I, th- I want to see a whole new season of glory among us, God's glory among us as we grow in making disciples. Um, my friend Jared Doherty said, when the marginalized meets Jesus, the church thrives. And lastly, I just want to address the idea. Does anyone feel tempted to be prideful or boast about the progress we've experienced? Now, I just listed in this sermon a bunch of things that I have never seen in another congregation. And I think it could be really easy for us to take credit for ourselves. And I think that would probably be the worst thing we could do. Let's remember Jesus' words from John 15, 5. I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Unless we remember that God causes all the good and we only do it, we only act it out, we're going to become prideful. None of us Not a single one here can do one single thing of eternal significance without God empowering you to do it. So let's not leave the vine. Let's abide in Jesus and give him the thanks and the glory for everything that he's done so far to lead us up to this point. All the ways he's preserved us. All the ways he's blessed us. All the fruit he's produced in us. He finished the work of reconciling us to one another and to God. When he was forsaken by his father on the cross. When he was abandoned by his friends. He already did it all. And we only get to be his servants. We get to do it through to more people. So I just want to conclude. Let's just have a sense of how great Jesus is. And how much we need him. As we move into this next season at All People's Church. Let us not forget that he rose from the dead and he's pleased to use people like you and me.
fulfill the Great Commission and to accomplish his purposes in the world. And so now I just want to invite you to a time of prayer. Please break off with the people around you. I just want to invite you just to pray and just to thank God for a few minutes for all the good things that he's done in our church and to ask him for his grace in the future. And if you're new or visiting here, don't feel like you have to pray. You can just chill out and kind of listen in. You can pray if you want to or you can just listen. Just uh, whichever one feels more comfortable to you. And so yeah, go ahead.